This is Reconsidering, the podcast about life and finding ways to make it more satisfying. I'm Bob Baxley. I'm Meredith Black. And I'm Aaron Walter. Too often, we've been told that the workplace is an arena of competition, a zero-sum game where the strong thrive and the rest barely survive. If we're going to reconsider anything, it's hard to imagine a better place to start than this outdated, outmoded, and destructive model of the workplace. What if instead of a fight for survival, we came to see companies and work environments for what they truly are? Groups of people coming together to collectively create something of value. What if we stopped thinking of our workplace as an entity with a will of its own, and instead realized that at its core, our workplaces are webs of relationships between people, real three-dimensional human beings, each with their own emotional lives, their own hopes, their own dreams, and their own struggles. What if we took a moment to look inside ourselves and changed our own attitudes and behaviors so that we could show more compassion for our coworkers and even for ourselves? What if the workplace became a source of deep fulfillment and personal growth, a place that filled us up instead of wearing us down? Our guest today is Scott Shute, the former head of mindfulness and compassion at LinkedIn and the author of the book, The Full Body Yes. In this episode, we'll learn from Scott as he shares stories and insights from his experience leading a large-scale mindfulness initiative at a major corporation. We'll also learn about the power of compassion and hear some of his insights about how to start following our own path rather than being buffeted about by the demands and expectations of others. Join Meredith Black, Aaron Walter, and me, Bob Baxley, as we talk with and learn from Scott Shute. I'm Scott Shute. I'm the author of The Full Body Yes. I used to be an executive at LinkedIn. And in my most recent job there, I was the head of mindfulness and compassion programs. First of all, Scott, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we start with a collection of lightning round questions. These are sort of, you know, A or B type stuff. You look like you're ready to play. Let's do it. Here we go. Okay. Morning or night? Morning. Library or coffee shop? Ooh. Quiet coffee shop. Pencil or pen? Pen. Atlas or encyclopedia? Atlas. Epic adventure or restful retreat? Epic adventure. Backpack or suitcase? Backpack. Classical or jazz? R&B. Nice. (laughs) That's good. That's good. We'll go with that. Passionate or practical? Uh yes, <laughs> sorry. That's good too. This no, is no, my that's whole good. World, it's both of these yeah, things yeah. put together. I, I would say practical. Habit or practice? Ooh, practice. Now or later? Now. And color or black and white? Color. Okay, that's it. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> There's a story in every one of those. We could spend the entire time on that. That's why we do them. <laughs> yeah. So Scott, welcome to Reconsidering. We're so happy to have you here today. I just finished reading your book, The Full Body Yes. And thank you for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. It. Loved it. Loved all of the stories in it. But for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about not only why the book is named The Full Body Yes, but what The Full Body Yes actually is? Sure. For me, The Full Body Yes is when you just know Right? There's times in your life when you think, but when you just know, it's a pretty special thing. Right? And there's been times in my life where you know, I've been grinding on a decision, and it's most powerful when this happens, when you're grinding on a decision and you feel like the stakes are really high. And then I've come to a place where I just knew, you know, mind, body, spirit, all aligned. You're like, check, I know. And now we can move forward. When you feel like that, you don't have this niggling, like, yeah, buts with the mind, like, no, all that disappears because you just know. And so the book is called that because at a deeper level, this is a story about self-awareness. It's the story of moving from me to we. It's a story of all of our lives. I'll speak for myself. When I was 16, it was all about me, 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 my achievements, my winning, what I was going to do in life, my happiness. And then what life teaches me, because life is the best teacher, over time, I got married, I became a father, I became a manager, became a leader. And pretty soon you realize like, I'm not going to be happy unless we are happy. And at work, I'm not going to be successful unless we are successful. 
And so this is the story of my journey, really all of our journey. But when it goes better, what I have learned is when I listen to that voice, that deepest part of myself, when I listen to that part, instead of the mind or emotions, then I'm in the zone. And then I have the full body yes. So it's about how do I cultivate this awareness so that I'm more in tune with life is really what it's about. The book is really a collection of these different stories throughout your life, starting from when you're younger. And the way that you describe yourself, you sound very, at that point, very type A, very driven, very focused, competitive. And there's a spirit of control that is present in that type of experience as a young person and who you were and maybe still there today. And then there's also in many of the stories, there's this theme of letting go of like having to let go. And that to me is the thread of the book, the tension between control and letting go. How do you think about that tension today in your life? Oh, this is so alive for me right now. The question I've asked myself for the last, whatever, 30 years is how can I have both things? How can I be an achiever? And because I was, I was wired to achieve, I was wired to win. And, you know, made my way to Silicon Valley and made my way up the food chain at work. But how do you be a top performer and be at peace with yourself? And there's two stories from kind of the spiritual traditions that haunted me. In the first story, I don't even know the context or the tradition, but there's some sort of baptismal event. The teacher is with a student in a river, dunks the student underwater, but then holds him there. And then continues to hold him there. And he struggles and struggles. And finally, the guy's about ready to die. And then the teacher whisks him back up at the last moment. And, you know, and after everybody calms down, he's like, when you want truth or God as much as you wanted air in that moment, then you will find it. So that's one story. And it's, that story speaks about desire, about focus. And then the other story was basically the teacher saying, when you finally let go of your search of your striving for truth, of your striving for God, you will find it. And I was thinking, how can these two things exist in the same place? But this is the story of all of us. How can I be a good person and be a high achiever? Well, here's what I've come to believe. In our youth, we learn to grow, we explore, we stretch our wings. And this is how we explore who we are. And each of us develops a set of skills that are unique to us because of our histories. So at the deepest level, I think of this in a spiritual way, is that I am soul wrapped in this personality of body and mind and emotions. But the way soul gets around is through that personality. And soul is expressing itself through Scott. And that's all the stuff that I do, whether it's I'm a mountain biker or a father or a leader or whatever it is. And so I'm expressing the divine through myself. And that includes, you know, that expression includes, well, maybe I want to be the best manager or father or whatever. That's desire. But then at some point we reach in our growth this lesson of, it's not about me. It's not about these results. It's about relationships, about learning how to give and receive love. And then we have the letting go. So this magic, like threading the needle, this magic formula is, yes, I have the striving, I have the achievement, and then I let go of the result. Okay, well, what do I do with that? How do I operationalize that? Well, most football coaches have figured this out. It's all about the process. You can't control how the ball bounces or the weather or the other team, but you can control the process. So you get really, really focused on the process. And then that turns into the result over time. But then I'm in harmony because all I can do is what I've done. I can't control the outcome. It's extraordinarily hard, but this is the fundamental truth of where we are. You said something in the book that <laughs> I was on a walk with my dog and I literally stopped in my tracks because it resonated with me. 15 years from now, the jobs we're completely consumed by right now will be reduced to a few bullet points on a resume but our relationships will be with us forever. I've been keeping score wrong this whole time. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And I only know that because now I've had jobs that were 15 years ago. In the moment, it seemed so important. It seemed 
so critical. And I would make choices based on those jobs instead of making choices based on those relationships. And there were times in my career where I tricked myself. It's like, oh, I'm doing this for my family. No, that's BS. I was doing it for me. Of course, there's a part of us which has to provide. And as the you know, primary breadwinner, I felt the pressure of that providing. But then where it gets out of balance is like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go on this extra business trip, or I'm going to go on this extra meeting at night, or I'm going to work at night because I'm providing for my, I'm doing this for us. Like, no, that's just not true. It certainly resonates with my experience that Meredith and I worked together back in the day. And, you know, there's a story we both tell about, I think when I realized that software is just like making sandcastles on the beach, yeah. there's nothing about the stuff that's going to last. Of, of all the things we could be making together, software is the most ephemeral. And yet, <laughs> you know, right. for decades, I would sit in these meetings and get totally wrapped around the axle about the smallest little details. Yeah. And when I talk to younger designers, the thing I try to you know, help them understand is just what you said. It's like when you look back on your career, nothing that you create in software is still going to be around. What you're going to have is those memories of the times you were with the people and what it felt like creating stuff. That's the stuff that really lasts. It is so hard to keep that in the foreground. I wish I could implant that into my son who just started you know, the beginning of his career. And you know, he's in that moment of it's all about me and I'm how can I make my dent in the universe? I've come to believe that Every generation has to go through the same learning. How I got to that point is, you know, I was doing research for the book. And one of my favorite quotes right now is from James Clear from Atomic Habits. Mm -hmm. He says, our lives do not rise to the level of our goals. They fall to the level of our systems, which is genius, right? And there's so much in that one statement. And as I was researching it, I found that he was not the first person to say it. I found Archilochus said it 2,400 years ago. And probably Archilochus lifted it from his teacher from 500 years before that, who lifted it from an oral tradition a thousand years before that. So in other words, this great knowledge has always been there. There's nothing really new. We have new context. And yes, James Clear is brilliant and brought it to a different context. And that was, you know, that's beautiful. And so when we think about that, it's like, okay, how could we have learned this same lesson 2,400 years ago? Why are we still have to learn it? It's because... If somebody told you when you were 18 or 22 or 25, the same things that you know now, you'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. But you'd still go do it your way. And then when you become 40 or 50 or whatever, it's like, oh, yeah, I see how this works. <laughs> so every generation, I think, is forced into the same loop, the same path. And the best we can do as elders or anybody who has any knowledge is to get it out there. Like we don't want it to die. So you continue to tell the stories, you continue to put it in context, you continue to go it out there. And hopefully the hope of hopes is that the person gets it the first time instead of the 22nd time when they actually go through something that matters. It is crazy because the more you study this stuff and all of us with the show and the people we've talked to and all the learnings we've done before we started doing the show, I mean, certain themes emerge and it always points back to ancient Greece, almost invariably ancient <laughs> Greece and ancient Rome. And you're just sort of struck like, like we had this stuff figured out thousands of years ago and we're still yeah. just repeating kind of the same lessons over and over again. Right. And the truth is we probably had those same lessons in ancient China and ancient Persia and ancient Africa. It's just that that was the part of our culture that got saved and retold. Scott, I want to jump back to talking a little bit about your career. At one point, you had a gigantic job. You were managing customer service at LinkedIn. Presumably, you had hundreds, if not thousands, of people reporting into you. Later, you transitioned into a very different role within LinkedIn. And now, you're a freelance coach and an author and a photographer. Can you explain to us this journey that you've been on and share a little bit about how you made the decision to go from one step to the next? Sure. So I had found this kind of achievement path, which led to me being the VP of global customer ops at LinkedIn. Yeah, I had a thousand people reporting to me. And I'd had this parallel, not exactly career, but part of this my life where I'd had a meditation practice, a spiritual practice since I was 13. I was teaching that since I was in college. I'm a member of the clergy, you know, outside of work. I never talked about any of that. But I got to LinkedIn and it was such a safe place, such an open place that I brought my practice in a secular way to work. I started by leading a meditation session on a Thursday afternoon at 4.30, a long time ago. And that first time there was one dude there. 
you know, and I'm sure that he was just as terrified as I was. I never saw that guy again, but it, that <laughs> blossomed into this big program. I ended up being the executive sponsor of our mindfulness program. We didn't have one. So a bunch of volunteers and I created one. And then I had done that for a few years. And then Jeff Weiner, our CEO at the time, gave the commencement address at Wharton about three years ago. And he talked about compassion. You know, if you're going to be successful in life or in work, be compassionate. And I was thinking, okay, it's time. It's time for me. I've been doing my ops role for six years. I was ready to do something new. But it's time for us at LinkedIn. Because our CEO just essentially told 15,000 employees that compassion was the most important thing that they could do. Then wh what were we doing? What does it even mean? And so I made a pitch to Jeff and our head of HR, and it was kind of hard to say no to. And so <laughs> so uh, we created this role, Head of Mindfulness Compassion. And my mission was is still, to this day, to change work from the inside out by mainstreaming mindfulness and operationalizing compassion. And then one click further, you know, during the pandemic, I was compelled to write this book. I wrote this book, The Full Body Yes, because I wanted to bring this work to more than just the 15,000 people or so at LinkedIn, but to the world. And then so eventually I transitioned and now I'm off in the world as a free range chicken, you know, still trying to change work from the inside out. I just want to press a little bit on this mindset because, you know, all of us have plenty of friends. We talk to colleagues all the time who are really frustrated in their jobs. And I often try to encourage people to think about recreating their own job because it for some of us, like that is an opportunity at certain points in our career. And you seem to have a mindset. You've done this multiple times. I have. There's several models that I use. One is the Japanese concept called Ikigai. And so some of you know Ikigai is an intersection of four circles designed to you know, help us with our life's purpose. And the four circles are what I'm good at, what I love to do, what someone will pay me for, and what the world needs. So what I'm good at, what I love to do, what someone will pay me for, and what the world needs. And I think our careers are not linear, right? Even a singular job at a single company can find you inside and outside of these circles. But I use it as a filter to make decisions of, am I getting closer and closer and closer and closer to the bullseye, which will make me happy? Now, I have known about that for a long time and thought about it for a long time. So I want to fill my job with the things that I love. And of course, the more skills you have, the more flexibility you have, right? So the older we get or the, the later in career, we have more flexibility to move our jobs. But even in the beginnings of our careers, we can shape that entry-level role to have more of the things that we like, whether it's working with people or working by ourselves. But it starts with self-awareness. Right? A lot of people don't even know. They're climbing the wrong mountain. They're looking at their next job and they're like, how can I make 15% more than my last job? Like, really? No, that's a terrible way to figure out how you're going to be happy. It's all about meaning, not about money. That's interesting that you say that because when I talk to people who are interested in design careers within Silicon Valley and they don't know where they want to go, one of the things I say is, well, maybe if you went to a design studio or an agency, you could try a bunch of things out before you dive into just one field. And it kind of sounds like you're doing the same thing here. You're kind of putting your pro and con list together of what you love about your job, what you don't love about your job, how you can change things. And you know, I've been a person that has definitely built my career out of morphing into new roles for sure. But I don't think it's that easy for a lot of people. And so that's where I would ask you is like, do you have any, I don't want to say like tips or tricks, but like, how do you get started? You know, how do you even get the courage to ask that question to your manager or to start to dig into what you really love to do? I think, again, it starts with an extraordinary level of self-awareness to really understand what do I love or not love? And I might not even know the answer to that question. And so if somebody doesn't know the answer to that question, I'm like, then just pick something. Pick something and you'll figure it out. And over time, one of the things that was really beneficial to me in this self-awareness journey were these personality tests that we take at work. I've probably taken 10 or 15 of them. Myers-Briggs and AVA and now the Enneagram and like DISC and 10 others in between. And each one of those cracked open the window to understanding who I was. In addition to, you know, the work itself, it's like I'd find out that, oh, like I like this part of work, but not this part. So it comes with experience. That's part of it is being self-aware of that experience and just be willing to try something. 
But then if we have this filter, like the ikigai, the four circles, we have our values. If we're clear on what our values are, that's another filter. Like as an example, I never will work for a jerk boss. Right? I don't care how much they pay me. There's no amount of money in the world that is worth that. Well, that might not be true, for, not for very long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but at least I would know what I'm getting myself into. Right. And so this self-awareness and this decision tree then gives me better information when I have these choices in front of me. And I think that's the stress that we all have when we're 22 or when we're 18. When we're 18 and trying to figure out even what to major in, there's so many choices. What do I do? Well, just pick the one that seems the best and you'll figure it out. There's no magic answer to that. And the same is true of our opening job. We may not even have a choice. We may apply to 23 things, but just get one. But then over time, it's putting all of that in our little awareness bank. And then over time, we're going to have more and more and more opportunity to flex and to be flexible with our careers. And in doing that, you are creating choice for yourself. And that changes your mental approach to your work and potentially to your life. You talk about this in the book, how, you know, this concept of you may or you must, it's a very different way of thinking. If you choose to do something, we tend to be more open and ready to explore it. Can you talk about how choice shifted your thinking in your life? Absolutely. It's so powerful. As an example, take anything that you don't want to do right now, make it real. Maybe you have to go to the birthday party of your 14-year-old nephew or whatever. Maybe you have to go to family over Thanksgiving. Maybe you have to go into work on Friday when all your friends are... So pick anything. Now, I'm going to tell you, you have a choice. You know, And on the other side, you're going to be like, no, I don't. I, I have to go to that. Like, no, you don't. You don't have to go to work. You could choose to leave your job right now. You don't have to go to that birthday party. You could choose to not go to that birthday. You could choose to leave your family. Like, well, that's not really a choice. Like, yes, it is. It is a choice. Because here's the thing. When I stand in the fire, when I stand in my own self-responsibility and say, look, I choose this. I chose this job. And so I'm going to make a choice right now. Do I still want this job? Yes, I do. All right. Well, is this the thing that is good for me? And I choose to be successful in this job. All right. So it's the difference between saying all these things I have to do versus all the things I am doing or all the things I get to do. Because once I realize that I'm in control, it shifts my attitude towards it. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to consciously choose to go to this birthday party. And if I'm going to consciously choose to be there, then I might as well not be a beacon of darkness, right? <laughs> I might as well, okay, well, what else am I going to choose? Oh, I'm going to choose to you know, try to be a good person. I'm going to try to choose to get along with my cousin who I have struggled with before. The choice of the basic things then starts to allow for the choice of things that really give color to our lives. It's interesting because the choice is not between going and not going. The choice is between going and dealing with the consequences of exactly. not going. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. you, you have the choice to leave your family, but you don't few of us would want to deal with the consequences of leaving our family. Exactly. All of us are sort of making a deal in the moment. And I think what you said there at the end of, well, if I'm going to if I'm going to go on the positive side of the deal, I'm going to go to the party, I should try to make the most out of the deal that I've made and go in it's something other than a beacon of darkness. <laughs> <laughs> a ray of light perhaps. Exactly. <laughs> Cuz here's the thing, the flip side of this is that gratitude plays a role in this. Mm -hmm. Gratitude is often the last thing we think about because we are what I call pothole managers, right? We have a negativity bias. In other words, there can be a thousand miles of perfect road, but if there's one pothole, we obsess about that one pot. We'll spend 99% of our time thinking about the one pothole. So think about the last performance review you ever got, right? There can be five pages of all these glowing things and three sentences of things mm, Scott could do next time where am I going to, I'm going to focus my time on the three sentences. Now, in the same way, we'll take the birthday party example. I'm spending all my energy thinking about this birthday party I don't want to go to. Instead of thinking, wow, I'm actually grateful that I have a family. I'm grateful that there's this party that I can go to. I'm grateful, I'm grateful, I'm grateful. So once we start to see the whole picture, instead of just focusing on the one pothole, then we see it's like, oh, actually, in the big scheme of things, this is not that big a deal. 
right? In the big scheme of things, I'm going to choose my family. I love having a family. So I might as well not be a beacon of darkness. I could be a ray of light. And it shifts everything, starting with stop thinking about the pothole. Yeah. I, a few years back, learned about one of the meditation techniques of doing negative visualizations where you sit and you can't do it for very long, but like you really sit and try to imagine in your head that you don't have a family or you don't have a job. <laughs> you can only do it for about a minute. It's just like, it'll make you nuts. But, yeah. you know, when you come back from that, like really deeply thinking about, oh, I don't have this job, you come back with it, you know, a minute later, you have an amazing appreciation for the job. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. It's all these, it's like these movies where they fast forward 10 years and you, you know, I just watched one where the guy woke up every three minutes to see a year later. You know, he could see his life and how it was going to go. This is what self-awareness does. Self-awareness allows us to see not just this one moment when we're complaining about doing something, but the big picture of what this means from our past, but also our future. Hey, Aaron Walter here. Bob, Meredith, and I are so excited by the reception that Reconsidering has received from listeners. Turns out people are really enjoying the show. We're working really hard to bring you conversations from best-selling authors and deep thinkers who have insights that can help you find satisfaction in your work and your life. If you found the show meaningful and useful, we have a small ask. We hope that you can help us grow the community by just leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Yes, they now have podcast reviews too. Wherever you listen, just search for Reconsidering in the podcast directory and leave us a quick review. This will help others find the show. It's also really helpful for Bob and Meredith and me to get your feedback as it'll help us refine the show. Our sincere, deepest thanks in advance for your support. Now, let's get back to the show. Do you make any distinction between self-awareness and self-acceptance? You know, as you were talking about those personality tests, and I've had a similar experience, I find part of the challenge is really sitting and accepting what's coming back to you in the personality tests yeah. and realizing that, oh, the thing that my brain and personality are wired to do or maybe different from where my self-image is sitting. For sure. You know, in the book, I have kind of these four steps. The first one is self-awareness. The second one is loving yourself, which I guess is kind of like self-acceptance. But you could be aware of yourself and still not think very highly of yourself. You could still be disgusted with yourself and have all this negative self-talk, which is not helpful. It's just like the pothole. We want to we focus on the light so that gives us strength to deal with the dark, right? It's not that we're ignoring all the things that are, quote, wrong with us. It's just having a balanced view of it. And if we can then move from that balanced view to do things that are helpful for us in terms of loving ourselves and accepting ourselves, that is so powerful. Because then what we find is like the same thing happens with other people. We become aware of others, and then we can start to love other people in the same way. And I guarantee you our life goes much better when those steps happen. I want to go back to something we were talking about, which is you have a choice. You can make decisions and stuff like that. And then I was reading your book, and one of the things that you kind of talk about is like sometimes the universe will give you a sign. And so one of the stories that really resonated with me was your story that you had about Anka and Mackenzie. Am I saying her name right? Is it Anka? Like Paul Anka? (laughs) Anka, probably. Oh, it is Anka. Okay. Yeah. I wonder if, you, like, and I think it's something that a lot of us struggle with in terms of decision making and wondering if we're making the right decision, the wrong decision. And it's something that I think a lot of us really, really struggle with. And I'm wondering if you could tell that story a little bit, because I think it would really resonate. Of course. It's the primary story of the book. On the front cover of the book is an orange rhino. And people are like, what? What is this? Why is there? And that's the reason. Like, I want you to see the orange rhino and wonder why and open it to find out. So here's the setup. I was in a situation where I had to make a big decision, and it was probably the biggest hiring decision I'd ever made. I was a VP, had this big team, and my top lieutenant had just left, and I needed to replace him. And it was a big job, and I knew that my success was going to be heavily, heavily dependent on this new person's success, because it touched like every other VP in the company, literally. And we had a big team of people involved, country managers and SVPs, and you know the whole world, it seemed, was involved in this hiring decision. And we had done our homework. We had interviewed many, many candidates and gotten down to the final two. 
And exactly half of the team said, absolutely, it's this external candidate. The internal candidate? Nah, I don't think so. I don't really think that person can do it. And exactly half the team said, oh, it's absolutely, you know, the other candidate. And this other candidate, I really don't think could do it. And I'm like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Because my superpower in life is collaboration. I can get people to collaborate. I get them to work together. My life strategy is around likability, you know? So everybody has a life strategy. Mine is around likability. That's what makes me feel safe and helps me be successful. And here I was, the biggest decision of my life, I was going to have to upset half the team, which included some very people more senior than I was. And so I felt a lot of weight on this decision. And I'd gotten to the point where there was no more interviewing to do, like everything was on paper. Both of these candidates were going to be great, but you can't predict the future, which one is going to gel more with the team or whatever. And so I thought, all right, well, what do you do? Flip a coin? I don't know. Well, I had something more in mind. So for me, I wanted, I wanted, you know, I went into contemplation and I was basically having a conversation with the thing, whatever you want to call it, the universe, God, whatever you want to call it. And I was basically saying, look, dude, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. Is it A or B? Is it, you know, internal, external candidate? And so I thought this time, I don't ask for this very often, but I want to sign this time. And so if it's candidate A and I thought about her and she has this long black hair. And what came to mind was this, like a long black hair tied into a bun and fastened with a butterfly pin. And as I thought, I'm like, wow, that's really specific. Like, how's that going to happen? Mm. And then I let it go. And I thought of the person B and she had this orange work bag that she carried around all the time. I said, it's orange. It's, I'm going to see an orange um, rhinoceros. And as soon as I said it, I'm like, what? <laughs> what the like, how is this supposed to happen? Like, okay, fine. I threw up my hands. I'm like, fine. I let it go. Next 24 hours, I'm watching. Butterfly pin, dark hair, orange rhinoceros. And I let it go. I didn't think anything more about it. Next day, I'm out with my team. We went to see a movie, you know, Friday afternoon. I'm sitting there in the movie, hanging out with my seat partner, letting the stress of the day and the week just kind of fade away. And there's this ad, this preview for a you know, Kung Fu Panda 2, I think, something like that. <laughs> and across the screen ambles an orange rhinoceros, right? And instantly, like, like, it shook me. Like, I'm looking, and it only happened for, like, a microsecond. And instantly, the brain wants to get involved. The mind, and the mind is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Was that red? Was it, like, maroon, or was it really orange? I'm like, no, stop it. That was it. And I checked in. I'm like, okay, that means that it's this person with the orange bag. Like, does that feel right? And I checked in like, yeah, that feels right. And for me, that was the full body yes. Like I didn't, I didn't think about it at all after that. I didn't doubt it at all after that, you know? And that person turned out to be amazing in their role. They did get the job. <laughs> <laughs> How do you interpret that? Do you think of it as like a way to kind of like tap into your subconscious to like find what you already knew was true? It's, I mean, it seems like it's maybe akin to what happens when people go to sleep? You know, you're working on something very difficult and the mind is sort of like just lost in a lot of detail. Then you rest and discover like the answer that you knew is true. Well, so this is where we get into belief versus knowing, right? And so this is my spiritual belief. And so this is where I kind of have to play it safe when I'm talking about incorporations, but you asked me what I think happens, right? So my mental model for how life works is that at the root of it, I am soul. I am a spark of divinity, a spark of God, like in an ocean of love and mercy of all of these souls and other energy put together, right? So I can become God-like, but not God itself. That's my mental model for the world. And how I get around in the world is through my mind and my emotions and my body. That makes Scott is the personality that the soul gets around in the world. When I do my practice, my meditation, I would call it a spiritual practice. I'm trying to tap into the consciousness of soul, not the consciousness of mind or emotion or body, but the consciousness of soul. And soul is connected to the rest of everything, right? So if there's some sort of grand purpose or working with the rest of life, if there's something that the rest of life wants to happen, then I become a vehicle for that thing. And kind of the evolution is we move from life is happening to me to life is happening for me, to life is happening through me, 
right? So in this moment, life is happening through me because I'm, I don't know, interpreting this information and becoming a coworker with the thing itself. So that's how I interpret it. It's like divine guidance. Do you think we miss a lot of this because we're not in the moment? 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Have you guys seen The Matrix? One of the things I did over the holiday break is my kids and I, we watched all three of the original Matrix, which the first one holds up really well, by the way, mm-hmm. I'm 22 yeah. years old. Yeah, it's amazing. And then we watched the new one. We went to the movie theater and watched the new one. But it's like The Matrix. We're so obsessed with what we think is so real. But what we think is so real is actually the play. And reality is something else. So do we miss it? Yeah, we miss almost all of it. And we have these little moments where we're tapping into the thing that is actually true. It's like someone should tap on us and go, wake up, wake up, Neo, wake up. And we get this little <laughs> feeling that, wow, I think there's more to this. But, and then we go back to our video game, right? Or we go back to our chasing some job or chasing some relationship. We're climbing the wrong mountain. Maybe you could unpack for us, you've referenced your own spiritual practice, which meditation is a key part of it. And you've talked to us a bit about cultivating self-awareness and how important that is, but it seems like what you're really describing is not self-awareness, it's awareness. How do we cultivate that? I think how do we do it is first start by admitting that we don't know everything. So it starts with curiosity. Who am I? Why do I act like this? These standardized tests that I talk about were super helpful because it gave another piece of the puzzle. It's like, oh yeah, I kind of am like that. And that's in contrast with these other people. And so it's being curious. Why do I do that? Who am I? (laughs) This was not a problem for me because this is how I was wired. I was obsessed with myself. So talking about myself is the most fascinating topic in the world, right? When I was a kid. So I developed a skill at that. But I think that's where it starts. Curiosity. I want to go back to this rhinoceros story for a second because for what it's fascinating but you know you talked about some stuff at linkedin not the least of which is that you take your team to go see a movie at the end of the day friday <laughs> which is not what's happening in a lot of companies yeah you know in the telling you also referred to this role as your first lieutenant and you talked about people being senior in the company too so you're actually using military metaphors to talk about a corporation which is very common and yet you're in that final role at linkedin you're sort of charged with bringing up the spirituality and the humanity of everybody, but it's still a hierarchical corporation. Or maybe it's not. I mean, it's a big company, and of course, is now owned by Microsoft. Like, What are some of the unique things you were trying to do to smooth out the difference between hierarchical decision-making environment with a very, very strong-willed CEO, but also this recognition that you know, we're all people here and we're all trying to do the best we can? Sure. There's a couple threads to go on. And so, first of all, a hierarchy of organization, every organization has to have some hierarchy to exist. That's just human nature. This is how we organize. And every person is playing their part. And the consciousness of a company or an organization, or in other words, how they operate, is reflective of the consciousness of the individuals who are involved. So for me, mindfulness and compassion are two sides of the same coin. Mindfulness, what we're trying to do, but at a high level, mindfulness is just another word for awareness or self-awareness. And so what we were doing is literally trying to create a mindfulness program. In other words, trying to get people interested in meditation, because that's one of the ways to mindfulness. And so we'd have things like we give people access to apps. I hosted a speaker series to bring people in with different thought ideas. Every year we do a 30-day challenge around this app to try and get the whole company to you know meditate for 30 days. We had weekly you know, drop-in sessions that were more than just meditation. They were discussion groups. So things like that, in addition to workshops, which broader topics than just meditation, around things like mindset, growth mindset, resilience, things like that. That's all about the individual, the development of self. But then I think where it really gets interesting, what I'm really passionate about is compassion. Because compassion is how we interact with other people. And not just, oh, we want to be a group that saves kids in India. We often think that compassion is for people who are somehow less than. We can pull them up. But compassion is for everyone, even people ahead of us. It's for everyone. Compassion is how we operate. So we start to talk about, okay, how do you operationalize compassion? And part of it is, I'm not saying that 
I changed the culture of LinkedIn. LinkedIn is already a compassionate place. I felt like part of my job was to be like a reporter to write down all the ways that it is compassionate. So to essentially write the book on how to operationalize compassion. And so that's what I'm really interested in. And so your next question is, okay, what does that mean? What's an example? Well, let's say that you're in sales. A very compassionate thing a sales leader could do would be stand in front of whatever X thousand people at sales kickoff and say, look, our job as salespeople is to provide long-term value. So don't sell something our customers don't need, you know, like at the end of the quarter, just so you can hit your quota. That's compassion. That's thinking about all of us. Or in product, if a product manager comes and says, well, here's my new product. It's going to generate 22% more clicks. The first question is always, yeah, but what about the member experience? What about the customer experience? And if the answer is not good, the job of the leader is to stop the meeting and say, well, no, this is not going to work. Like come back when you've thought about the member experience and make that just as good as the increase in clicks that we're going to get. Could you give us a definition of compassion? Because I have heard Jeff Weiner talk about this, and I don't think it's crystal clear to everybody. Sure. Well, my definition, and there's lots of good ones out there, but I like this one because it allows me to teach to it. Compassion is capacity. So our capacity for it changes day by day, minute by minute for three things. The first one is to be aware of others. The second one is to have a mindset of kindness or to wish the best for other people. And then the third one is the courage to take action. Now, we often think about this as you know how we deal with each other, but I think it's really useful for a business to use those three filters for your customers and your employees, right? So are we really aware of our customers? Do we really know what's going to make them successful to make them win at what they're ever trying to do? Do we really have a mindset of wishing the best for them? Are we thinking every day about how we can help them be successful? And then third is the hard one, the courage to take action. Sometimes we need to do what's right for our customers that's not good for us in the short term, but we know it's going to be good for our customers long term, which will make our business successful long term. So you think of every security feature in the world that an internet company has to put involved. Security is not great for getting more clicks. Security is great for the customer. And we know as LinkedIn or Apple or anybody else that long term, if you treat your customer and respect their security, that's going to be good for your business long-term. Yeah. And maybe just back on the compassion thing, contrasting that with sympathy ah. and empathy. Yeah. Let's talk about empathy versus compassion. So empathy, I would say, is putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. So it's kind of the first two steps of compassion. I'm aware of them. I understand how they feel. And then the third piece is the courage to take action. This is the difference. Compassion is empathy plus action. You talk about in the book, the recipe for working with life, this three components, be open, trust, and take action, which kind of echoes some of your definition for compassion. How do you use that structure in your life? It's embedded in everything that I do now, right? So <laughs> it's like I'm a fish in the water. I no longer see the model. I'm just being now. But this is how I've kind of come to understand it is everything starts with me. First, am I aware of what I'm doing? Do I have an environment where I care about myself? And then do I have the courage to take responsibility for myself? And if I can do those things, then I have a good chance of doing those same three things for someone else. I like to keep things simple. So what we're talking about, if we really boil it down, is I talk about operationalizing compassion. But for me, compassion is just a proxy for the word love. But we're not quite ready to talk about love in the workplace. We're just getting to the point where we can talk about compassion in the workplace. But love for me is just a proxy for the word God or divine or whatever word you want to insert there. And almost every wisdom tradition that I am aware of, the teaching boils down to God is love. If you want to be more godlike, be love. It's not complicated. We make it complicated by saying, well, here's what you can eat, and here's what you can believe, and here's how you dress on this day, and all this other stuff. But all of these things come down to my own awareness of who I really am at the deepest, deepest, deepest level, and then awareness of other people, and that those other people are soul too. So we've talked a lot about compassion, and I think one of the things that 
you know, we've all experienced is compassion and a changing workplace over the past few years, which seems to be a never ending pandemic. <laughs> Where do you, <laughs> I don't, what was it? The beacon of doom? I don't mean to be the beacon of doom. Um, hopefully by the time this airs, we'll be in a much better spot, but I'm curious because of the way that you have a certain lens on things. Where do you think the workplace is headed? Yeah. Well, let me talk about the pandemic in context. Yeah. Somebody asked, well, when are we going to go back to the good times? I'm like, really? (laughs) Explain to me when that was. Yeah. So, you know, I love the quote by Rumi. He says, again, talking about wisdom that's been there for 700 years. He says, yesterday I was clever and I tried to change the world. But today I'm wise and I'm working on changing myself. And this is the whole thing. We change from the inside out. This pandemic might last a thousand more years or it might get a hundred times worse or it might disappear tomorrow. We don't know. So we control the things we're in control of. So I actually think the pandemic has been a gift. Now, I know people will cringe, but hang with me for a second. Maybe not for some people financially or emotionally or mentally, physically, but spiritually a gift. Because here's the deal. Life, I believe, never gives us more than we can handle, but it often gives us more than we can handle with our current recipe. So we're forced to change. So here's what's happened because of the pandemic. The great reshuffle. Why? Is because almost all of us had this experience. We're like, oh my God, what? Really? Is this, who am I? What am I doing? So again, back to self-awareness. Am I really going to do this job for X more years? Am I really going to work for this boss? Am I really going to work in this industry? So people are forced within because they have been forced to. They've been woken up. Wake up, Neo. Wake up. And so they've moved away from the distraction that we were all in. And they've had some self-awareness. They've been forced to go in. The amount of people meditating has exploded. The amount of people you know, looking within for solutions has exploded because life got too hard. So what happened? Now work has to adjust as well. Work is not this amorphous, faceless thing. It's made up of people. That C-suite, they're dealing as individuals the same problems that everybody else is dealing with. They're like, well, I don't want to work like this either. But they're also dealing with the very real thing like, okay, well, nobody wants to come back to work. So now what do we do? Or our business just disappeared and reappeared and disappeared. and re- Now what do we do? So where is work going? I think that work has to, capitalism has to reflect something different from this consciousness that has changed within the workers. The workers, we've all stood up and said, we want something different. We want more of a life. And so work will adjust to that. Capitalism will adjust to that. Everything from the service workers, you're not going to get people to work at fast food for $7.50 an hour still in some states. You're just not. They're not going to do it. So you're going to have to pay more. Or in white collar workers, employees are going to gravitate towards companies and managers who will invest in them, who will create a workplace that has compassion at the root of it, which is essentially treat people with kindness at the root of it. And companies who try to make the old ways work, the management practices that were born in the agrarian age when we had kings and slaves, and it was just do what I told you to do or else, that's just not going to work anymore. So it's going to change. It has to change. Yes, we're all going to go through the pain of it changing, but it's evolving. And I think in a very good way. Scott, we like to wrap up episodes with a little bit of reverse mentoring. So you're very good at visualization meditations, obviously, very self-aware. So if you could take just a moment and try to recall Scott at 25 and try to think about him and bring him into your head and think about the wisdom that 25-year-old Scott had, because he had some. If you were to sit and have coffee with him today, what advice would that Scott have for the Scott you are now? Oh, I was totally headed down the other direction. (laughs) (laughs) What would I tell him? What what would he tell me? Yeah, what would he tell you? I like it. Remember to have fun. I think in so many ways, I'm becoming more of the 25-year-old. Because as an 18-year-old, I was torn in these two directions. I was torn between just wanting to have this bohemian spiritual life and then also having to go to work and be an adult. And my whole life, I felt this tear. And for most of that life, it's been focused on this side of me, which is very serious and, you know, adulting. 
But now I get to incorporate the two things. And so now I'm listening more to that 25-year-old that wants to be a bohemian. I was like, just enjoy life. Just relax. Thank you. We asked that question with all the guests, and you would be shocked at how many of them give approximately that answer. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's actually quite reassuring in a lot of ways. Because yeah. the truth is, I think we're all on pretty much the same journey, just in different contexts. Mm-hmm. It's the same stuff. Whether you choose to be an ad agency professional or an engineer or an actor or go live in a monastery, the same arc of life lessons will come to us. Scott, where can people learn more about you and your book? Sure. The easiest place to find me is at scottshoot.com. The book is called The Full Body Yes. You can find it wherever books are sold, including in audio, which, side note, I did the audio myself. It was super fun. I enjoyed it. It was a good performance. (laughs) Thank you. And of course, you can follow me on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for joining us. This was just filled with so many great moments and bits of wisdom and, and rays of light and precious few <laughs> dooms of darkness, <laughs> which I think we could all use. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed what Scott had to say, and I felt like a lot of his stories in the book had some relevant piece of like, I've been there as well. That's how he frames the beginning of the book is, you know, I'm going to tell my story, but these stories are our stories. Wondered if the two of you had the same experience. Yeah, I think he's very personable in terms of having a conversation with him. And I felt the same way with his book. I read his stories and I felt like I was kind of there with him along the ride. But I also was like, oh, hey, this experience has happened to me too. I also just found him to be very calming in a, in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'm curious, Meredith, uh, maybe you could point to a story or some lesson in the book where it specifically felt like I've been through this myself or this is something I'm struggling with too. It was kind of the one that we were talking about with Anka and Mackenzie. That one was a big deal for me because there have been situations where I, as a manager, have been asked to hire somebody. And for me, I feel like it's a make or break. Like, oh God, like if I don't hire the right person, what's going to happen? Are people going to look at me differently? Are they going to think at me differently? Like, are my choices in line with what's happening with the company? You know, and all of that stuff. And I feel like sometimes you can have all of the facts on paper and the people can be the exact same, but there's something about just kind of which really resonated with me is just kind of like going with your gut. And, you know, he sees the orange rhinoceros. I've I've never seen an orange rhinoceros, so to speak. You know, you just start to visualize what life would be like, what your work life would be like with this person involved. And it just kind of makes the decision easier. However, that being said, I've made bad choices too. I've made bad hires and I've made bad choices and I've learned from them. And I think that's what makes me even more hyper aware the next time I do it, you know, is because of those decisions. So that one just, it it just really resonated with me. And that's why I wanted to bring it up with him. Bob, how about you? Was there a story that you related to? Yeah, I don't know if there was any particular story so much. I think listening to him and listening to some of the other guests we've had over the last year or so now, I'm just struck at how the same lessons keep coming up over and over again. I think I'm relieved in some ways because it almost seems like this problem of life seems somewhat solvable, I guess. It's not easy, but I don't think it's complicated. Scott and Brad Stolberg was another one, but we've heard it throughout most of the the episodes is that people come back to just a few core lessons, which by and large tend to come back to just try to love the people around you and be grateful for what you have. And if you can kind of hold on to those two things, a lot of the rest of your life is going to be great and kind of going to take care of itself. So I was struck by that. You know, and I think Scott made a good point that sadly, it seems like each generation has to relearn that, but maybe that's maybe that's just the human nature. Maybe that's what binds us together as humans and what kind of bonds us to previous generations. Maybe we're not so different from people living in ancient China or people living in the Middle Ages or something. You know, maybe we're we're just people too. We just happen to be living in this context. Yeah, struggling separately together on the same challenges. Aaron, was there a story that resonated with you? Well, I mean, you know, I mentioned it when he pointed out that there's a story about his wife losing 
a baby having a miscarriage and he was in a very difficult professional situation that where there was a lot of planning that went into this moment and he really felt obligated like this hierarchical obligation to be present professionally but he had this family emergency that his wife was alone suffering through a miscarriage and he felt that sense of sadness and loss as well had to suppress that and not respond he felt like he had to be at work and that afterwards the realization just the utter clarity of it was just a moment that disappears it was an important moment that was consequential but ultimately the consequences were so small they were minuscule compared to that family connection and what he should have invested himself in at that moment which goes back to the idea of choice we always have a choice to do a or do b even if it's very difficult and we have to deal with the aftermath the wake of of that choice but we always have a choice and that for me resonates because i just find that i don't know why but like work often floats to the top of priorities for me and there've been so many times where i've been taught actually no that's not the most important thing why did you make that more important than something else so i think it's like this constant reminder that i have to give myself of what's really most important here what's going to have lasting weight in my life you know i think he started to get to that with some of those comments there at the end i had this great line life never gives us more than we can handle but it often gives us more than we can handle with our current recipe and then he talked about how the pandemic despite the tragedy of it and all the suffering he thought over the long term what we might reflect back on as a bit of a gift because it's given us all this moment to slow down reflect and to reconsider. And I liked at the end kind of what he said about capitalism in the workplace is going to adjust because it's going to have to adjust because workers are going to demand it. And what you were just talking about, Aaron, this pull of work is this cultural disease that we have. And I know we're all reading books about that right now. And like, what is that intensely and I think uniquely American push? to put our jobs at the forefront of everything else happening in our lives. And I think the pandemic is forcing us as a culture to really question that and arguably slow down and hopefully I think kind of you know push that aside and move to a much more human and much more humanistic and in, in Scott's words, you know, much more compassionate orientation towards ourselves and towards the world and towards each other. Yeah, the word I keep thinking about when you're talking about this, Bob, is identity. We wrap ourselves in our work because it's our identity, right? We want to look successful. We want to be successful. We want to feel successful. But at the same time, there's so much more that life has to offer. And I think you're right. The one thing that this pandemic has taught us is that not everything needs to be wrapped around success or work. And there are more important things out there or equally important things out there that we should be looking at as well. I do want to also point out that question, how do I perform at a very high level and be at peace at the same time? I read that in the book and I was just like, yes, how do I do that? <laughs> and he started to give us a bit, not really a recipe, but like a reference point that this has been something that people have tried to figure out for a very long time. So Bob, I guess to echo your point earlier, it's like there's some solace or comfort in knowing that others wrestle with the same thing, but it's a very difficult tension. How to make a life while making a living. Those two things are many times at odds. And yeah, it's something I'd like to find some balance in. Aaron, I wonder if you're trying to balance two things that aren't ever going to naturally be balanced. Maybe this idea of success and achievement and what it takes to do that and the way you're going about that is not something that is reconcilable with inner harmony. And maybe we need to reconsider what it means to be successful. Even Meredith in her statement a minute ago, she said, you know, maybe we can realize that work is not the most important thing, or at least not more important than other things. Mm -hmm. Even in that statement, she couldn't acknowledge that maybe work is in fact just not the most important thing. Because maybe it's not, you know, maybe our identity should be wrapped up in who we are and what we mean to others and what others mean to us. I don't know, something to think about. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black. 
with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kima Maraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.